Hello and welcome to the Mammal Podcast. I'm your host, David Wu, and in this episode, I interview Dr. Nigam Shah, Professor of Medicine, Biomedical Informatics at Stanford Medicine and Chief Data Scientist at Stanford Healthcare. I had a very profound conversation with Dr. Shah. He is a wise and inspiring person. We talk about his work and its roots stemming back to the 70s, as well as current progress in implementing medical AI, and close with some thoughts about the future. I hope you all enjoy. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at The Mammal Podcast. Thank you. So hello, everyone. Welcome to the Medicine and Machine Learning Podcast. I'm your host, David Wu. And today, my guest is Dr. Nigam Shah. He's Professor of Medicine Bio and Biomedical Informatics at Stanford Medicine and Chief Data Scientist at Stanford Healthcare. Dr. Shah's research focuses on combining machine learning and prior knowledge in medical ontologies to enable use cases of the learning health system. So our first question for you, Dr. Shah, is a question that we ask every guest. And I was wondering, can you tell us about your path and how you eventually came to the intersection of medicine and machine learning? Well, as, uh, as, as most good things, uh, part serendipity, uh, being in the right place at the right time, and having uh, people who are older than you and have a broader view pointing you in the right direction. So I, when I finished med school, uh, I was going to become an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, my dad's a surgeon as well. And then one of our family friends who got his grad, did his graduate studies in the U.S. in the 70s convinced me to apply to grad school and try research. And he said, you know, what do you got to lose? Like, if you don't like it, always come back and be an orthopedic surgeon. So I applied and got into a couple of uh, graduate programs. And that was the time when the Human Genome Project com got completed and the use of computation to improve medical care or at that point, more biological understanding became front page news, like the New York Times, the Times Magazine and Nature and Science and so on. Uh, and that's what got me interested. I was like, oh, this idea of using a computer to you know, make better decisions is kind of neat. And that's what launched me on that path. Mm, so then with grad school, you know, how was that going from medical school to graduate school? So that wasn't too bad. Like once you've figured out how to memorize things in med school, uh, uh, grad school turned out to be, at least the coursework was <laughs> a walk in the park. <laughs> And then uh, my research was about building reasoning systems. Uh, and I did my graduate studies at Penn State, which does have a med school, but it's like 80 miles away in Hershey. So I ended up, I was on main campus to so build my reasoning system for molecular biology, working with yeast. And then when I finished, uh, pretty much everybody on my committee and my mentor said, doctors who do this kind of computer business all go to Stanford, so you should go there. And I got a couple of introductions. I met my current division chief uh, in 2005, literally just walked over to his office and knocked at 4 p.m. Wow. Met him, <laughs> met him for 15 minutes and he said, call me when you graduate. So that was January 05. I graduated in August, called him. And then September 05, I joined as a postdoc and I never left. That's great. <laughs> what was the kind of initial work you were doing as a postdoc? Uh, mostly using medical ontologies to organize existing knowledge so that we can use it for computation later, a field that's called knowledge representation. Mm. That actually kind of leads me to uh, one of my first questions. And I was wondering, what would you say is the, the thesis of your work? So to put it in general terms, um, is to learn from what we have done for our patients in the past, and which is the premise of medical training. Uh, you, you know, you, you train with, a, with an attending physician because they have seen more patients uh, and more experience in terms of how disease behaves so that they can teach you how to spot patterns that are helpful in treating the next human being. Given the way medicine is now organized, very few doctors actually see the complete life cycle of a disease. We've become a very compartmentalized profession. But we all use a computer. 
to document everything that has been done. And so, you know, if you take a condition, typically it is the case that the hospital's data warehouse has seen more patients of that type than any one physician. Then why would we not get a second opinion from the database? That's the gist of the idea. That's a great point. That's, wow. I, I love, it's a very elegant idea, very simple, but also very profound. I, and I think it's very important. Um, so, I mean, like all good ideas, the first time a doctor tried to do this was before I was born. So Dr. Alvan Feinstein at the New Haven VA built a computer program to interrogate a library of patient records, as they called it then, 658 or so patients with lung cancer, whose information was queried in order to build a prognosis estimate for the next patient. What was this again? 1972. Oh, wow. And then subsequently in the 70s, Duke University had something called the Duke Data Bank, where they tried to do this for patients with heart problems. Uh, so the cardiologist division did that. And then fast forward here, uh, in fact, several people who were present when these original projects happened, uh, including my department chair, Robert Harrington, or Bob Harrington, as he goes, um, they saw the potential back in the 70s. And when enough data had accumulated today, and I came up with this idea again in 2014, well, in fact, Bob Harrington is a co-author on that along with uh, Chris Longhurst, who's now at UC San Diego. Uh, it was kind of literally 40 years after the first uh, <laughs> hydration of that idea. Wow. And we said like, you know, it must be good if it came back again on its own and then we, decided to do it because now there is enough data in computable form. Wow. This almost makes me think of, you know, the history of medicine and how even, you know, before the seventies, people would write case reports, even kind of dating back to like the medieval times, even before that um, doctors would kind of say, Oh, I saw this patient and I did this. Mm -hmm. And then this is the results I got. And uh, that was kind of like the most primitive form. I guess. All right. I mean, I guess it's the best that we could do back then. Right. With like written, knowledge and um, finite dissemination of But that's what's happening right now. Every time a physician sees a patient, you're essentially writing up the case report. Yeah, yeah. And why would we not go back to that? Mm. Wow. That's, you know, I was actually thinking about this recently, how um, kind of technology has been intersecting with medicine and um, I don't know if you ever heard of like those Gartner hype curves and how there's like a, a peak of like overinflated expectations. And then there's a trough of disillusionment followed by a plateau of mm -hmm. productivity. Um, I, I would, you know, it seems like EHR, at least medical records has kind of reached that plateau of productivity. But in the context I was thinking of this was, um, you know, we were seeing a cancer patient and then we were, had the sequencing uh, results. And this made me think of, you know, how we were, earlier we were talking about the human genome project and how in like the late nineties, everyone thought, oh, this is going to be the future. You know, this is going to, we're going to cure all diseases. You know, we're going to figure out how diabetes works. Um, and really it seemed like we haven't really delivered on that promise, but now recently, you know, now that like sequencing is openly and freely available, we can, and now that we have, you know, kind of at the same time, we have these like small molecule inhibitors or like immunotherapy that can target those mutations. Like we're finally starting to deliver on that promise. Um, and I guess this is kind of a tangential question, but where do you think AI is on that, uh, on that curve? So it depends how you conceptualize AI. Um, and if you think of a model as a mathematical equation that takes a certain number of inputs and produces a real valued output. And you think of that model as a component in an algorithm that stands in the stead of a human being to make a decision. We've had AI in medicine for a very long time. Uh, the humble cell sorter, for example, used in pathology labs. When I trained, we would be looking down a microscope and counting manually the number of white blood cells and of what kind that we saw. Wow. 
Right? Nobody does that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> right? You put it in, and instead of the pathologist counting, there is a computer and an algorithm that tells you the CBC, the complete blood wow. count. And nobody I took that for granted. It. I didn't even know. <laughs> and no, and nobody questions it. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, just measuring blood pressure. When was the last time someone put a stethoscope to somebody's arm to measure blood pressure? <laughs> Only when the cuffs break, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And so uh, in some sense, algorithms that automate things in the place of humans are already here. Mm. The kind of AI people sort of, I mean, part of it is just hype. I mean, media likes yeah. to hype stuff up. And, uh, you know, the movie version of AI where the algorithm sort of, you know, makes decisions about you and, and you know, the algorithm tries to lock you out of an airlock. And so, I mean, that's mostly science fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you look at practical things like the cell sorter or the reading of an X-ray to find a chest tube or automated scanning of a pathology slide to find that area that a human should focus on, I mean, algorithms are already here. So the question really is, are we using algorithms to augment the physician? But are we using algorithms to replace or displace the physician? And in some cases, if an algorithm is competently able to displace a physician, it should. Like, why would you want a pathologist wasting an hour looking down a microscope counting blood cells? An algorithm does it way faster and cheaper. Then I guess the question is, uh, how do we make sure it's safely doing that? All right, right. So now we're asking the right question. So instead of the question we should be asking, and that applies to any technology, is how do we use the technology to advance the goals of that profession, which mm-hmm. in our case mm-hmm. would be to provide safe, reliable, and ethical care. And I would add a fourth one, cost-effective. Yes. Right? <laughs> yes. Because if, if the adoption of AI increased the cost of care, I don't think that would be a good thing. And so that's the question med students and early career professionals should be asking, not about whether to use AI, but how to use it so that it is useful, it is safe, it is ethical and cost-effective. I feel like this is a, a perfect segue for us to perhaps talk about some of the projects that you've been working on. Um, mm-hmm. I, I know two in particular, there's the uh, a palliative care uh, model that you've been working on for predicting um, mortality. And then there's also like a green button consultation. I was wondering which one you'd like to discuss first. Well, we can discuss both in the same sort of frame of reference. So the frame of reference to think of is think of a little equation. Yeah. yeah. If the risk of some event is above a certain threshold, then take action X. You know, I I jokingly refer to this as the equation of medicine. Um, the (laughs) The hard part is that in any given situation, multiple such equations apply and you only get one or two out of the three values you need in order to make the proper decision. So you either get the risk estimate and the threshold and you, you don't know what the action is or you know what the action is uh, and uh, the threshold is, but you don't have a good way to estimate the risk or you get the risk and the action, but you don't know what's the threshold at which you should take the action. And so these two projects that you mentioned address different halves of that equation. Uh, The green button project is about looking at past data to learn which actions worked. So it's about, it's like a second opinion from the database, just like you would go ask your colleague, hey, have you seen cases like this? And you know, what happened? What did you do? What would you do? Uh, you ask the same questions to a database. So that's the green button project. The, the other one is about producing an estimate of risk 
which in the case of uh, uh, advanced care planning is the 12 month mortality risk. And if that risk is above a certain threshold, then begin having those conversations with the physician, uh, with the patient about what their goals of care are. And so in some sense, it's, it's a continuum of using information to provide better care. In one case, it's about producing a risk estimate that guides whether to act. And in the other case, it provides a summary of what worked so it can guide the choice of how to act. Mm. I was wondering, could we, you know, for the first one, for the palliative model, could we talk about an example? Because um, I feel like it probably does, you know, we're talking about cost saving. It probably does save costs, right? Um, or, you know, what has implementation been like? Um, it, it depends on the viewpoint. It depends on what you view as cost. Uh, you could view cost as the number of number of days of goal discordant care someone has. Mm. And cost is not always in dollars. Mm -hmm. In fact, for a, for a teaching hospital or an academic medical center, if you just look at dollars, we should just be doing procedures and billing for it. So by, by not doing things, we in fact lose money. But that's not the point. The point here is that every time we're doing procedures for someone who doesn't need or want them, there's someone who needs them who's not getting it. Yeah, that's a good point. And so, it, I mean, of course, again, the media likes to frame things in terms of algorithms denying care to human beings. And sometimes I say that's like worrying about seat assignment when the Wright brothers flew their first plane. I mean, it's a, it is a problem that will arise in the future. I, there's no doubt about it. It's, but it's not a problem we have right now. Mm -hmm. And right now, the problem we have is how do we use these things in a manner that they fit into the workflow so that when an algorithm produces a prediction, there is a human being who is responsible for and is tasked with doing something about it. Because... You know, we've been making readmissions predictions in this country for like 30 years. But readmission rates have not changed. Why is that? There's two reasons that I can think of. One is that the reasons people get readmitted are beyond the control of the healthcare system. And two, for the most part, when an algorithm says, you know, so-and-so patient is gonna get readmitted, there's not one human being who I can identify who can clearly say, this is what I will do. And here's the chance that doing that action will prevent a readmission. Mm -hmm. like we just don't have a plan of what is the action that we're going to take. And so the work in front of us as a community is to figure out if there were algorithms that were providing us with predictions how are we going to organize our work so that we can do something about it? They, this you know, from, for those of that. you who are in clinical rotations, I mean, think about this. If, if on a given patient in a given bed, let's say, you know, for argument's sake, John Smith in bed 26, at 8 a.m., 50 algorithms produced 50 different predictions. Is the health system or hospital where you are rotating, able to do anything about that. That's the problem to solve. Like, what would you do if you knew? I saw the, an article written about your collaboration with Dr. Harmon on this um, mortality prediction model and how she would get an email, right, mm -hmm. of, of the patients that were predicted. Um, and I was wondering anecdotally, how, how did she change her her treatment plans or how, how would that frame, did she do anything, you know, kind of in this? In this yeah, so we, we, we approach the problem in the opposite. So let's say a hundred people get admitted to a hospital every, every night. And, and Dr. Harmon's team is, is in a small and it can have a conversation with eight or 10 of them. Which eight or 10 should they focus on? Mm. They can choose at random. They can choose based on 
the referral from the treating physician, or they can choose proactively based on this algorithm's prediction. And whether it's an email or an epic alert or a text message, I mean, that's not the point. The point here is that what to do was already figured out. They had a plan. The, the advanced care planning process, you know, 21 steps, seven handoffs, three human beings, 48 hours, they had that nail. They knew what needed to be done. So it's relatively easy for an algorithm to help in that situation. But if you build algorithms that produce an output, a prediction, where it is unclear what to do, I mean, I can give a prediction for free. Like every, every listener of this podcast is going to die someday. 100% accuracy <laughs> oh, of that prediction. Uh, yeah, right? for sure. <laughs> and then what are you going to do about it? So I mean, there's a lot of such useless predictions. Uh, mm -hmm. And so you should only focus on making predictions where it is clear who's going to do what, why, and when. So in this scenario, it was kind of prioritizing which patients, you know, if you're only able to see eight or nine a day, like, all right, these are the eight that are nine that you should focus on. Exactly. Mm. And the hypothesis we made is that mortality risk is a good surrogate to find those people. And then we tested that hypothesis. And turns out that yes, it is quite concordant with a human doing chart review to pick the case. So that level of testing is also really important before putting something out uh, uh, into a care system. Wow. And what about the green button consultation? Um, you know, this is like, Kind of how, can we talk about that one as well? Like the story behind sure. it? So there, I mean, going, you know, going back to the 1972 example, you know, doctors have always wanted to do this. Um, it is also the spirit of when you curbside someone and say, hey, how many patients like this have you seen? And what would you do? Or what was your experience? And in that case, you know, first we started out trying to build a tool a piece of software that a doctor would use. And then we very quickly realized that that's a bad idea for the very simple reason that whenever something sufficiently complex arrives in medicine, in order to incorporate into healthcare, there is a specialty practice that takes care of it. The primary care physician doesn't do the MRI, the radiologist does. The pathologist does the blood tests and reads the biopsy results. So if you imagine this getting this act of a second opinion from a database, similar to doing an MRI of the database or a biopsy from the database, why wouldn't you have a medical specialty doing it? And then guess what? There is a medical specialty called clinical informatics. So we put the two together and say, why don't we offer this as a consultation service? Just like you can oh, consult cool. radiology and pathology, you consult informatics and they give you a report. Oh, that's really cool. I mean, why would you force somebody to, you know, use the software, right? <laughs> that's really cool. Wow. It's like, instead of consulting a specialty, you're more like consulting the history. You know what I mean? Like, it's, wow, mm -hmm. that's pretty cool. Yeah, so instead of asking, or consulting, consulting the, the shadows of the past. <laughs> instead of consulting the memory of a case in somebody's mind, you're consulting the record of that case or those cases in a database. Now, of wow. course, there's noise in there. And just like memory is faulty, there's noise in the database, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and But there's ways to overcome that. And there's ways to estimate your chances of being wrong. Uh, and when that chance is pretty high, you don't provide the report and say you can't say anything. Mm. And that's another reason to have a human in the mix because they can have judgment and say, you know, in this case, it's only like seven patients and it's all over the place. We're not going to produce a report and say, you know, it can't say anything. What are the kinds of questions that people come to this green button consultation service for? Oh, all sorts of things. So 
the academic project got completed in late 2019. And uh, the paper on that is published in the New England Journal Catalyst. And uh, the commonest kinds of questions, I mean, there's like nine or so categories we found, uh, but the most common one was to evaluate sort of prognosis based on a certain laboratory test result, mm. uh, followed by deciding what institutional practice should be for those areas where there were no existing guidelines. Um, in fact, very few questions were comparing treatment A versus treatment B, which was kind of a surprise for us, uh, but in some sense relieving because like 48% of the questions or almost half of the questions were just asking for a descriptive summary as in how often does something happen huh. in patients of a certain kind. They just wanted a prognosis estimate. Huh. Um, and then subsequently, that effort is now spun out as a company called Atropos Health. And uh, in some sense, like we did about 100, 150 cases in a year and a half. They did that many in 60 days. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so Saurabh Gombar, who was an instructor at Stanford, uh, left and is now a chief medical officer and teamed up with the executive Brigham Hyde, who run the two of them together, run the company. That's awesome. That, that's really cool. I, I was uh, thinking about the equation that you'd mentioned earlier, you know, this kind of the fundamental equation of medicine that you were talking about that if risk is greater than a certain threshold, then do X action. Um, and it seemed like the, you know, the palliative care project we were talking about, that's more so on the kind of determining the risk mm -hmm. threshold or mm -hmm. if risk greater, kind of that first part of the equation. And it seems like this green button consultation is kind of doing a little bit of both, depending on the question. Would you say so? Sort of. You could say that. You could say that. But most of it is on the, yes. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Hmm. Um, kind of zooming out a little bit, I was curious, you know, for my next question, I was wondering how has mentorship shaped your path? I think without mentorship, there isn't much of a path. <laughs> uh, uh, then it's a random walk, right? Yeah, yeah. So I've, I've been lucky to have people at the right time. Uh, you know, in my graduate studies, I was mentored by, believe it or not, a plant biologist. Wow. Uh, one of the leading ones, actually, Dr. Nina Fedorov, who taught me to be a scientist. And then uh, subsequently here, I've had my current division chief, you know, Mark Mewson, uh, and my department chair, Bob Haddington, who've been uh, sort of guiding me along the way. Um, and then they have brought in other people, like too many to enumerate. Uh, 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 but one... Another program that our School of Medicine has um, is called the Stanford Medicine Leadership Academy, which brings in literally a, a roster of mentors of different kinds who can guide you on you know, clinical questions to technical questions to career choice questions to you know, how do I figure this one out? How do I pick between two or three really exciting projects and all sorts of things? Do you have any advice for people early on in their career, um, such as people like myself, you know, how to find uh, good mentors and how to have a, a, you know, productive and good relationship with mentors? Um, yeah. Do you think it's like a mix of serendipity or is it initiative agency or maybe both? I mean, there's some luck definitely, but a lot of it is initiative because a mentor can't tell you what to do. Like you have to have the initiative to provide both the appropriate amount of background and your planned actions to then get your the mentor's opinion of what they would suggest you do. So mentorship requires 80% of effort on the part of the mentee in order to prepare to get the mentorship. So you can't just show up and then expect to be given great advice. Uh, so that's, I think, the uh, uh, like really important. Yeah. And then second, try the same prep and go to multiple people for advice. 
and see whose advice is quote unquote better. And that's a better mentor for you. And there's a little bit of an experimentation because, and also you can't have one mentor who satisfies all your questions. There are certain kinds of things for which you go to different people. You know, when you were a child, you know, there are certain kinds of things you go to mom to and others you go to the dad to. <laughs> Similarly, right? You, you, now it's just more than two. <laughs> oh, that's, that was really good advice. <laughs> Thank you. So a lot of people often believe that like mentorship is like going to like a counseling session. That's not the point of mentorship. That's counseling. In a counseling session, you can just show up, but not for a mentorship session. Wow. Thank you for that. Uh, I was wondering, you know, my next question is, I'd say now, you know, I'd say you're a leader in the space now. Um, and I was wondering, you know, as a leader in the space of medicine and machine learning, one, what's that like? Uh, two, do you find that you can make more of an impact in, you know, kind of having these ideas and like bringing them into reality um, and, you know, deploying, you know, like improving patient care with your insights? You know, what's that like? I mean, first, it's fun. Uh, and that actually comes from uh, one of the mentors I mentioned, Bob Haddington. Uh, there's always a million things you can do. And there's never enough time in the day. So you always have to pick things that are both important, but also fun. <laughs> and so one of the signs or one of the ways that being a, a leader helps is that you can pick things that are genuinely fun. And if they're genuinely fun, you'll put in a lot more energy in it than you would otherwise, and it'll make an impact. So I would say very early on, like people should start asking the question, whatever is it that they're doing, is it fun? If it's not fun, find something else. There's enough work to do in this world. What was the last fun project that you decided to work on? Well, these two were the, you know, it, it, academic projects sort of go in chunks. Uh, so the Green Button Project and this uh, Advanced Care Planning Project are the, the two that we just wrapped up. And now we're working on another fun one where we're trying to ask the question, uh, is it possible to learn general purpose models in medicine? So there's this notion of something called a foundation model. And, you know, several of you on the podcast might have heard about things like WALL-E and GPT-3 and DALI and so on. Um, all of that has traditionally been done in like the general computation space of like learning from Wikipedia and published papers and so on, or on images. Um, what if we tried to learn something like this on medical data? Like one, would it work? How would we know it works? Uh, and what is it good for? And there's some interesting trade-offs. Like, yes, it's one model that does five different things. Like, you know, the, la the latest one uh, that hit the news is the thing called Bloom from the Hugging Face Project. But what if it's making mistakes and we have to retrain it? Those big models take a lot of money to train. Like, I think Bloom costs something like $7 million to train. Wow. So if I train one model to do all predictions in a health system, and then I find that three of them are making mistakes, three predictions, do I have to retrain the whole thing? I mean, that's gonna be pretty darn expensive. Maybe it's better to just train special models, one for every task. We don't know what the answer is. Uh, so one of the projects we're working on is trying to answer this question that what role do foundation models have in healthcare. I kind of wanted to ask a, a more meta question too, is uh, what makes a project fun? Or what makes something fun, especially in a professional setting? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I would say at least half, if not more of it, is the people you get to work with. 
And then the rest of it, I would say, is the purpose. Most other things are overrated. <laughs> uh, so in my case, I love the people I work with. Uh, you know, I, often I joke that, you know, being professor is one of those uh, rare situations where a room full of people who are smarter than you think you are smarter than them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's basically the definition of a professor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the purpose that, you know, we're going to be using computation to improve uh, uh, healthcare. I just find, uh, I mean, I trained as a medical doctor, but I just find immense joy in that. Uh, and then, you know, are you working on Mac or Windows? And are you working in a driving in a Tesla versus a Toyota? I mean, uh, minor things, I would say. Yeah, yeah. Like people and purpose would be the top. Like 95% of it is just that. Mm. Earlier, I asked you for mentorship advice. Next, I want to ask you, how do you find the right people? So that's something I don't have much experience with. Because Stanford just happens to be a place where good people congregate. So, I, you know, I mentioned this person, Saurabh Gombar. Uh, he found me. I didn't go looking for him. <laughs> uh, and there's other such people right now. Two of them I'll mention specifically, Jason Fries and uh, Allison Callahan. Uh, you know, when you're doing fun stuff, when you're doing cutting edge stuff, good people find you. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't need to be recruiting and stuff, but being at a place where people with shared purpose congregate, I would say is the most important thing you can do to find the right people. Wow, that uh, I think it's, uh, I'm like remembering your, your life story and how you're saying how one of your, uh, when you graduated med school, your family friend or was it, your, mm-hmm. they, they told you to go to grad school and like that's, you know, that must've been really good uh, advice in hindsight. Yeah, yeah. Uh, these are some closing questions that we have for every guest. Um, first one is, uh, what do you expect is the future of AI and medicine? And where do you think we'll be in the next 10 to 20 years? Well, it's very hard to say where we will be. I can answer where we should be. And it, the adoption of any technology, AI or something else. I mean, today it's AI. Tomorrow it could be you know, we're sideways learning. Who knows? Uh, The goal has to be to provide better care to a larger number of human beings for less cost. At least in medicine and healthcare, like that should be the guiding principle. We can't afford inventing technology just to make money. We've done that for far too long in this country and uh, the longer we keep doing that, the worse off we'll be. So I'm just really, I'm digesting <laughs> what you just said. Do you think that's likely? And the reason why I ask that is it seems like whenever we introduce new technologies, there always seems to be, you know, an increased cost, like a premium associated with it. Um, even, you know, for example, in immunotherapy or you know, small molecule inhibitors, like these are treatments that are, that are helping people, but, uh, you know, at very large cost and it's based off cutting edge technology. And granted, you know, AI is a little different from, um, bio pharma, but I'm, I'm curious, do you think the general trend has been that usually technology is more expensive, uh, and it increases the cost of care. Do you think AI can help or, you know, its implementation would be cheaper or different from new technologies in the past? So technology, when it arrives, is always expensive and only a few people can afford it. And then it gets commoditized and then everybody can afford it. Um, you know, EKGs, for example, commodity now. A $5 patch can measure EKGs. Uh, don't need a fancy machine for that blood pressure measurement, oxygen saturation measurement, commoditized. So these fancy drugs, 10, 15 years, they'll get commoditized. So those are not cost for worry. The cost for worry is that the majority of cost in healthcare delivery is still labor. 
And the, the stats I'm going to cite are a few years old now, but it, it's the economists calculate, you know, this metric, which is how many human bodies does it take to produce a billion dollars of activity in, in a sector? And I think in, 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 uh, in IT and in, in tech writ large, it's like 25 engineers can produce a billion dollars of activity, something like that. Wow. Yeah, maybe, maybe 50, you know, something in that wow. range. Wow. In healthcare, at the time the study was done, that number was like 850. Like, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah. Like, and if you've ever had to schedule an appointment with a healthcare system, it's like five people you interact with just to schedule a damn appointment. Yeah. So I think in healthcare, we haven't commoditized the use of technology. And we, we pay labor costs for like the stupidest of things. That's a good point. My next question would be, what advice would you give to your 25-year-old self? Do engineering school before med school. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> uh, it's partly a joke, but you know, I, I trained in India, which follows the British education system. And so after high school, we go straight to medical school. And then I had to learn my computer science during my PhD. And for all those aspiring to be doctors, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, you, you're probably affiliated with the medical profession in some form or fashion. Uh, learn math, learn computation before you go into med school. Because it provides a different lens of looking at medicine and, and it, medicine is increasingly becoming an information science. And for that, the basic tools of engineering uh, are kind of necessary now. So as, as I often joke with students, you know, you, you be fluent in English, Spanish and Python. <laughs> <laughs> I like that a lot. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Yeah, I'm trying to learn Python or practice at least. And oh man, I wish that we had more opportunities in school to apply it or to, I don't know, it just feels like it's going to be a big part of medicine in mm -hmm. this upcoming yeah, century. Yeah, just like every other science learns English to communicate results. And most of the quantitative sciences learn math as their language, so to speak. I mean, you can't do physics without knowing math. Uh, very soon, it'll become difficult to do medicine without knowing statistics and basic math. Mm, yeah. I did want to close with a few um, kind of more fun, personal questions. Uh, I was wondering, you know, first question would be, uh, what, what brings you joy? Being able to interact with young minds that don't have any preconceived notions or baggage, so to speak, that's the most fun I have. What, what, what do you mean by baggage or preconceived notions? You know, when you're, when you're speaking with people who have 30 years of experience in the field, I mean, they'll be very quick to say, no, that can't be done. Uh... But a 25-year-old almost never says that because they don't know any better, mm. which is good because then you'll try things that others wouldn't even bother to try. And that's how progress gets made. My next question would be, what would you say is one of your biggest fears? That we're having such an interview 20 years from now and people are still asking, you know, what is the future of AI <laughs> medicine? <laughs> and nothing's gotten done. <laughs> okay. I mean, there, stuff like that has happened in the field. Uh, so... Yeah, do you think we'll have an AI winter in medicine coming soon? Well, we got to have a summer before we have fall and winter. It, it seems like we're kind of in a spring, would you say? <laughs> uh, hard to say, hard to say. I mean, right now there's a lot of hype. Um, but if you ask a health system, a large health system, that how many models are there that are running on a daily basis and, and actually impact the care of human beings? The number you'll get will be less than 10. Yeah. 
There's a lot of models that run. I mean, there's probably 50 or 100 models that run and produce a number that nobody looks at. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> yeah. Or even if someone sees it, you know, what's the, what are the odds they do something about it? Exactly. So. Mm. Are you at liberty to disclose uh, how many models run on Stanford at Stanford Medicine that are actually kind of impacting patient care or, you know, kind of changing it? Two for sure. Um, the, I, I mean, again, it's based on a survey, so it's hard to be com- you know, reliable mm-hmm. about this. Um, but two for sure, because I see the emails go out and we see the people following up, taking action based on that. So minimum two, <laughs> maximum, I don't know. <laughs> Can you disclose which two or is that like proprietary? No, no it's, it's, one of them is the uh, one for advanced care planning. Uh, and the other one is a survival predictor by a, a colleague of ours, Dr. Michael Gensheimer. Oh, I worked with Dr. Gensheimer. <laughs> oh, great. Oh, wow. That's cool. <laughs> Uh, my last question is, uh, what gives your life meaning? I mean, right now, you know, you could, you could get very philosophical about this. Um, but I find the ability to continuously interact with new ideas to be most fulfilling. 10 years ago, I was doing knowledge representations. After that, I did drug safety. Now I'm doing uh, machine learning in healthcare. Maybe five years later, I'll do something else. Uh, But being able to follow the interest that gives you joy, I think meaning comes with it. Mm. Um, This is kind of a, maybe a quasi spiritual question or, but do you think uh, there is anything new under the sun? You know, are there any new ideas? Um, what I mean by that is I, I feel like, you know, a lot, a lot of these ideas are kind of like just small, like kind of iteration or changes of a, of a former idea. You, you know, we were talking at the beginning of the interview about how medicine began with like people writing case reports, or even just, you know, if you're learning with like an old doctor and you kind of learn through experience, like I'm sure, you know, with Hippocrates, how he was teaching his students, it's like, oh, I saw a patient with this and then I did this. And so you should do this. Um, and I kind of, I feel like we're just part of a, this long line of tradition. We're just kind of the newest iteration of that. Um, and so my question is, do you think there are any new ideas under the sun? Of course, there's always new ideas. I mean, and you can always find an old idea from which that new idea germinated. I mean, if you talk to, you know, people who study psychology and cognitive development, I mean, when a baby is born, you know, do they even have thoughts? Who knows? And then all of the ideas that stem start from, let's say, the first word they speak. And so there's always some tie-in to a past idea. And it's very hard to argue that something is completely new, because if it is so completely new that it is, you know, has no relationship with anything that exists, how do you make sense of it? Because most of our understanding happens in terms of analogies. Uh, yeah. So the question to ask from a, from a practical standpoint is, is the time of this idea right? Whoa, what do you, whoa, okay. Whether, not whether it's a new idea, but is the time right? So just like the, the, you know, I mentioned Dr. Alvan Feinstein, who did this computer program to query a library of patients in 1972. Actually, he wrote the paper in 1972, so probably did it in 1970. Um, the library of patients or that database was 658 or 680 or something patients like that. So the timing wasn't right. Computers weren't fast enough. Wow, that's a deep thought. The database wasn't big enough, but the idea still had merit. And it came back in the 70s and 80s and then died again. And then it came back in the uh, 2020s and hopefully it'll live this time. Yeah. And like what we were talking about with the Human Genome Project. Mm -hmm. Now we're finally starting to see meaningful increases in human life 
Right. So, I mean, if, if, if you read the headlines at that time, which I did, you know, cancer was supposed to be cured by 2010, 14 years ago, or 12 <laughs> years ago. Uh, but, you know, some amount of overpromising is kind of built into the way the system works in this country. Yeah. Um, but if you think about it, you know, let's say whatever the human genome project costs, now a billion dollars, three billion dollars. Had that money not been spent, we would have nothing to show for. And so, yes, you could argue that was overpromised and so on. And yes, you know, cancer is still not cured by 2010. But hey, in 2022, we are seeing better treatments. Yeah. Which would not have happened otherwise. Yeah. And then it's, you know, progress is always hard to measure. And, uh, you know, things move really slowly in the beginning. And then suddenly, like the pace of things catches up. Now that sequencing is in place, it's cheap enough. We have targeted therapeutics. We have these things like PD-1 inhibitors and so on. Now, I wouldn't be surprised that in five to 10 years, cancer is no longer a death, death sentence. Yeah, it seems like it's more moving towards a chronic illness now. Right? So who would have said that in year 2000? Mm. So progress always appears slow when you're living through it. But when you look at it in hindsight, it's always like, wow, that was fast. Wow. Thank you so much, Dr. Shah. This was a very inspiring interview. All right. I really appreciate it. Wow. Thank you. Um, do you have any closing words for our listeners? Um, uh, not, nothing special. I mean, I'll reiterate what I said, you know, ask yourself, are you having fun what you're doing in whatever you're doing? If not, yeah. try something else. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Dr. Shah. All right. Um,